Thank you, Niels. You've covered most of my sermon, so I guess we can just carry on. Yeah, I must almost start off by saying this afternoon uh, group that normally are here, they're not people that you need to feed marshmallows. They're already quite good with biltong. So um, I trust you find, don't find my sermon too simplistic, but I do hope that it helps you maybe get some context around some of the big issues that we have to deal with. And um, I think I'll just start with a short prayer. Lord, thank you for being here. Thank you for being able to bring your word to people who I know are truly religious, people who want to be here. Lord, it's my prayer that you open hearts, Holy Spirit, that you make people understand the message, that you make them see how it fits into their own lives. Lord, not only here, everywhere where your word is being preached this afternoon, evening, make people hear the word pure, and may they understand that there's only one way to salvation. Lord, I only pray it to glorify you. Amen. I recently had the opportunity, if you can call it opportunity, we're a very well-educated young man, more than one degree, grew up in Afrikaans, speaking house, so I'm pretty sure he must have heard the gospel many times. And he came to me and he said to me, can you explain to me what Christianity has got to do with me? Why should I even care about it? Now, I had about 20 minutes to answer him, and I must admit, I mumbled and stumbled, and I don't think I did it true justice. But nevertheless, I probably left a pebble in his shoe, or maybe a thorn, hopefully, that would force him to go and seek further answers. And, uh, you know, subsequent to that, I started thinking about this question. Why do people who actually know the gospel not accept Christ? Um, what are they missing? And you know, there was also some few questions in, and I'll try and deal with them as I go. Um, but the two big issues, normally, that people question Christianity about is why does evil exist in the world? Why is it evil? Why are there wickedness in the world? Uh, why are there natural disasters, earthquakes, thousands of people being killed? How can it be if God is just? That's the first big issue that bothers people. The second one is, why can I only be saved through Jesus? Why is Gandhi not in heaven? I mean, he never followed Jesus, but you tell him to tell me that Gandhi is not going to be in heaven? Why Jesus only? Second big question that bothers people. So I want to look a little bit at Christianity, the big picture. You know, and I've heard people tell me, but Christianity is just a spiritual fantasy club. It's just some sort of religious system. It's just a guide to living a fulfilling life. Uh, just about a relationship with maybe God and Jesus, some sort of roadmap to heaven, although I'm careful about that one. It almost sounds like prosperity gospel stuff. But you know, all of these things are true, but it's not the real answer. It's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about the way things actually are. It's about truth. And when I say truth, I don't mean true for me, but not for you. I mean absolute truth. So what I want to do, I want to paint you a picture of reality. Uh, the way the world really is. 
and some would call it a worldview. You know, and I think worldviews is a little bit like a puzzle. Lots of big pieces, and you have to fit them together. And when you finish your puzzle, you can clearly see what the puzzle shows you. But there's a few issues when you build a puzzle. The first thing is you need all the pieces, not some, all of them, otherwise you really struggle to put it together. And the last thing you need is pieces of other puzzles mixed in, you know, all lying in the same box. They only confuse you. And I think the, the worldview of most people, in fact, even some Christians, is like somebody threw a bunch of pieces on the floor, it's scattered all over, there's no logic how it fits together, and thus people struggle. So I want to try and paint you this picture of the completed puzzle. And the other thing, some of you, uh, I know Len knows the story, know that any good story, any novel, I think we even spoke about it yesterday a little bit, has certain uh, structure to it. There's no, normally always a beginning, introduction almost. There's some conflict or problem. Then there's some form of conflict resolution. And then norm normally after the conflict resolution, there's some form of restoration and ending. And Christianity is like that. But Christianity isn't a novel. As I said, it's the way the world actually is. Christia the story of Christianity does not start with once upon a time. It's not a mythological fairy tale. Uh, it's about events that actually did take place or will take place. It's history, not religious fantasy. So when I paint you this big picture, I'm going to try and build this puzzle for you using a few, few big pieces. I'm going to sort of follow the storyline. So I'm going to tell you the story piece by piece, the story of reality. And the five big puzzles, pieces of this puzzle, is God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. I'll say it again. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. So I'm going to look at each one of these puzzle pieces and show you how it come together. First one is God. Our Bible begins with, in the beginning, God. God created heaven and earth. The whole story of the Bible is about God. It's a story about God. God is the main character. You know, and often as people think, well, yeah, no, actually, the story revolves around us. And we all keep on asking, what is God's plan for my life? Wrong question. What you should be asking is, how does my life fit into God's plan? Because the story is about God, not about you. And you know, I think you all agree with me. When you make something, you own it. It's yours. You made it. God made the universe. He owns it. He made you and me. He owns us. And that's why God is Lord. He made all of us. He made everything around us. He owns it. He's got every right to do anything he wants to do with it. So, also when we move through the story, you'll see there's a theme coming out of it. And some would say, yeah, the theme of the Bible is all about love or forgiveness or justice. Yeah, it's implied, but it's not the main theme. The main theme already came out of the first few lines, again, of Genesis, of the Bible. A sovereign king created the domain. King, dom, kingdom. You maybe noticed, and I'll, I'll say more about it just now, um, in, just in this piece that uh, Joshua read, the words, the kingdom of God, appear already three times. That is the theme of the Bible. It's about 
God's rightful rulership over everything that belongs to him, and that's everything. And you know, when you start reading the New Testament, and you start looking for this, the kingdom of God, you will see the first thing that John the Baptist was, was talking about is the arrival of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself, he kept on talking about the kingdom of God. Joshua read it three times in a short passage. Jesus was talking about the restoration of people's uh, relationship with God. The apostles were teaching that people should, be, should come back under the proper authority God intended from the beginning. And that's sort of the main theme, the main storyline that runs through the Bible. Now, by the way, if you have an electronic ESV or good concordance, and you look up the kingdom of God, that phrase appears 66 times in the New Testament. I think, you know, it's fairly obvious that's a very important aspect of what's going on there. Now, the other thing you need to know about God, God is separate from creation. You have God, and you've got creation. God created but God isn't the creation, the creation isn't God. And the reason I'm, I'm emphasizing it, there's competing stories. Now the first one I'll touch upon is, uh, some people believe there's only matter, materialism. I guess that story would begin, would start off saying, in the beginning, there were particles. There's no God, no spiritual beings, no miracles, only physical objects, natural laws. We call it evolution. The second major competing worldview, we find it in some of the Eastern religions, in Hinduism, Buddhism. Now, however crazy it sounds, but that's genuinely what people believe. They say mind is all there is. This is this one mind, that of God. Not our God, not the God of the Bible, but their God. So only this God exists. Everything else is an illusion. You're imagining it. Evil doesn't exist. You're just imagining it. I'm not a very satisfying way to answer the question, but that's generally what Buddhists and Hindus believe. I can talk about other worldviews, but I'll leave it here. When you get to the Christian worldview, which I think best models reality, we believe there's a God, uh, a mind, God, and God made matter. There's room for both in our worldview. It's not one or the other, it's both. That's why in our worldview, it's science works. I mean, we agree there's material things in the world, and that's why science can work. But we also say there are immaterial things. We also say there are miracles, angels and demons, souls, people have souls, moral values, all immaterial things. And they both fit into our worldview quite well. So I've tried to briefly show you this one big part of the puzzle, God, the next one of us, man. So I'm gonna talk about man. Now man, of course, second character in the story. Yeah, and man is much like everything else in the creation. We're all made of stuff. We'll go back to being dust when we die. Man is a creature. He's contingent. He can't exist by himself independently. A man is certainly not a god, and he's never going to become a god like some religions believe. So man is creaturely, but man is not junk. He's not just a cog in the wheels of the universe. Man is extremely valuable. Why? Well, man is the most special creature in the universe. Man has got a very special soul, a soul that carries, carries the image of God. And this, it's this likeness to God that allows man to have an intimate relationship with God. There's a little bit of God in every man, in his soul. So man is valuable, but 
we also know man is broken. Something terribly must have gone wrong. I mean, just look at the world around us. Look at the broken world, broken human beings, broken relationships. And our story explains why that is. I mean, in the, in the beginning, initially, God, after the creation, gave humans, man, everything they needed to live a fulfilling life. Even more, God gave himself. God wanted to have a special friendship with man. But man betrayed this friendship. There were, I guess the result was a rift in the kingdom. Man became separated, separated from the only God that can give him happiness and true satisfaction. It can only come from God. So today we live in a broken kingdom. And that's why there's evil in this world. So say originally there was harmony. Um, something went wrong with man. Man effectively broke the world. And some people will say to me, but how can that be? Well, how can the whole universe be affected by this somebody, the sin of man? Now, first thing you have to understand, God genuinely hates sin. And man sinned against the holy God. Now, people do not like the idea that God can become angry. But God became very angry about what man did. The term, the wrath of God, appears more than a hundred times in our Bible. Right through all the Old and New Testament. God is holy and just. He hates sin. God had every right, when man rebelled against him, to just destroy this universe he made. He could have just said, no, it didn't work, end of it. Or he could have chosen just to destroy man. But that's not what he did. Man had a rescue plan. And that rescue plan is the third world, Jesus. God himself came to earth, became a man, to res rescue mankind. The Son of God, Jesus, became a human. Now Jesus was genuinely human. He was born, he grew up, he had all sorts of trials and tribulations. He became hungry, he became tired, he slept, he wept. He was human in every single possible respect. But he was way, way more than that, because Jesus was also God. The Son of God, God himself, added humanity to his deity. Jesus was the God-man. Some people say, yeah, but Jesus was only a good teacher. And it's true. His teachings on equality, morality, social justice, literally changed the world forever. But if you think that's all he did, you're totally missing the point. Now, I'm going to read you some verses. Um, I'm not going to give you each verse reference. If you're interested, I can give it to you afterwards. But uh, I'm going to start with one, Luke 5, 31, 32. Jesus talking, he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for many. Now you need to know ransom is actually the price you pay to buy somebody out of slavery. And only a free man can free a slave. And then John 3:17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Now, what did Jesus come and save us from? Why did Jesus come and save us, had to save us from anything or anybody? Who did he save us from? Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus talking. He's not talking about Satan. Many people think this verse about Satan. It's not about Satan. Jesus is talking about God the Father. And that's why the writer of Hebrews further on says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus came to save humanity from God's wrath. He saved us humans from God the Father. Because he knew we were going to get destroyed through God's wrath. And that's why he came. Now, how did Jesus do this? Well, firstly, he lived this perfect life. We should have lived and never did. Secondly, he died on a cross in Golgotha. And some and a trade took place there. Which brings me to the fourth word we already had. God, man, Jesus, cross. Now, crucifixion, terrible way to die. It's probably the worst kind almost of, of torture for somebody to die. But many, many thousands of people died on a cross in Israel. The historian Josephus tells us that when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple in 70, the year 70 after Christ, they were crucifying thousands, tens of thousands of Jews. So much so, hundreds per day, they had to import wood to make all the crosses that was needed to crucify these Jews. And just think about it, there were two people crucified on each side of Jesus. So what made Jesus' crucifixion so much different? What happened on the cross with Jesus? I think sometimes we focus way too much on the physical aspect. It was terrible, I agree. It was absolute anguish. But Jesus' anguish, mentally, I think was orders of magnitude worse than the physical pain. Remember, God the Father poured his wrath for every sin that's ever taken place on the world onto Jesus. So that's what's different about Jesus' crucifixion, the mental anguish he must have felt, having to deal with all the sin being placed on him. And it's something called propitiation. Uh, the best English translations still use that word, and I, maybe at some point in time I would like to do a sermon about that concept of propitiation. But as I say, a trade took place. So what was the trade? Firstly, Jesus accepted the sin of every human who ever lived and will ever live. And he took the guilt for that. The second thing that happened, he then underwent punishment adequate for each one of these sins. And that's why I say he had all this mental anguish that was taking place. But in return, God the Father gave Christ's righteousness to sinners. That's a trade. Some would call it substitutionary atonement. You're trading your, your guilt for Jesus' righteousness. And Jesus takes your guilt and gives you his righteousness. Um, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, he said, for our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is what happened on the cross. We swapped our sin for Jesus' righteousness. Now, in that period, in Roman, I guess, basically ever since, when you have a major debt, it's recorded on a document. 
Otherwise, somebody would argue, well, I don't have a debt. But so they put it on paper. Now, when this debt are paid off, covered, they don't just tear up the piece of paper and throw it away because you can't prove I actually paid the debt. They put a stamp on it, and I put a word on it. Tetelestai, it's a Greek word. It just means the debt has been paid for. Done, finished. And when you read a verse like John uh, 19, verse 30, it reads, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Tetelestai, it's finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I think that wording, it's finished, it's not the best wording. You know, we see that same word uh, translated differently in other verses. For example, in Luke um, 15, uh, 12, 50, Jesus was talking to his disciples. And he says, I've got a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Now, the word translated to telestai is translated here as accomplished. I think it would have been a better word here. Um, I think when Jesus blows out his last breath, and he says, the telestai. He says, it's accomplished. It's done. This debt has been discharged. It's complete. There's nothing further to be done. The telestai. And this concept of the letter of debt um, being cancelled at the cross, Paul talks about it in Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses, all of it, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, the telestai. That's what Jesus was saying, the debt is cancelled. And that's why Jesus is the only way you can be saved. I mean, only he could have saved this problem. And you know what Jesus did on the cross? The suffering he underwent there, on our behalf? It was a gift. You can never earn that. It was a gift. Only way you can participate in that gift is you must trust Jesus for what he's done. And that's what we mean with faith. Trust in the only one who could have rescued you. And that's what Jesus did. Which brings me to the final main piece of our puzzle. We had God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. Resurrection. I'm talking about the final resurrection. Now, I've got good news for you and bad news. The good news, everybody lives forever. The bad news, everybody lives forever. You see, this story does not end and everybody lived happily ever after. People will be divided into two groups. At final judgment, it will be sheep and goats. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates a sheep from the goats. And the context we live in today, we don't understand what's such a big deal of sheep and goats. Now, I can tell you, if you see a photo of a sheep and a goat in Israel at that time, you wouldn't have known the difference. You needed to be a really good shepherd to know the difference, because they almost look the same. And, uh, you know, each one has got a choice to make. You can accept God's perfect mercy or God's perfect justice. Now, if you accepted God's mercy in Christ, you have received forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong by the work Jesus did on the cross, if you accepted Jesus. 
Matthew quotes Jesus to sort of said the following. He says, and he will place a sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those are the people that chose perfect mercy. Those who chose perfect justice, who has rejected God's mercy offered to them in Christ. They will receive punishment for everything they've ever done wrong. Now remember, God doesn't forget much. He's got a good memory. He remembers everything that you've ever done. And um, Matthew quotes Jesus in further, in verse 41 and 46. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go into eternal punishment. But the righteous will go into eternal life. So, everyone lives forever. Those who continue their rebellion against their God. What waits for them is a place of, of misery, darkness, utter desolation, loneliness, physical pain, what we call hell. Those who surrendered to their king, who accepted God's pardon for putting their faith in, in Jesus, they will get to live with him in a new world created where they can live with God as originally intended. And that really is a story. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. If you're a Christian, if, it, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, this is your story. But you know what? If you're not a Christian, if you've not accepted uh, Christ as your Savior, it's also your story. This is a story of reality. It's not a Christian fantasy. It's the way things really are. Lord, as we're going to sit down at your table at the Lord's Supper, Lord, it's my prayer that we don't only think about the physical suffering on the cross, that we remember this whole story, that we remember the perfect creation that you created, but you also remember that man broke it through a rebellion against you. How the Son of God humbled himself on our behalf. Jesus, how you became human so that we can be saved. Lord, we do remember the physical suffering on the cross, but we also think about the absolute mental anguish you must have suffered. When you face the wrath of God in our place, Lord, we look forward to the final judgment because we know our Savior will also be our judge. Lord, we look forward to being in your presence forever. And Lord, it's also my prayer that those who have not yet put their trust in you that they will see the light. That they will understand reality as it really is. That they will stop trying to hide away. That they will stop running away from you. That they will get to a point where they can understand there's un only one way to be saved, and it's through you, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask these things only to glorify you. Amen.